Hello, and welcome to 10 Very Big Books, a Malazan read-through podcast. My name is Peter Bond, and with me today is my friend and closest confidant, India Jones. Hello! Our producer, AJ Faleri. I am here. And he's uh, actually a pretty good lacrosse player, Joshua Dean Baker. <laughs> Not true. Barely average. You had to get the sports plug. Yeah, thank you. But of course, with us today uh, is uh, Steven Erickson. Thank you for returning to the show. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. Looking forward to this. Woo! Hooray! Yeah, so we just finished our read through of The Bone Hunters. And uh, before we move on to book seven, Reaper's Gale, we uh, wanted to sit down, catch up, and have a chat. So uh, here we are. And uh, Steve, looking back, book six. How do you think that one turned out? Feel good about it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, it was always a problematic book because it, it there's a lot, a lot of ground that had to be covered, and mm. I had to make a, a major shift partway through it. And so it always sort of uh, I found it challenging uh, structurally, but at the same time, it, it's it, it needed to be done because up until this point, what you were looking at w- was basically the the last. A uh, few episodes related to the bridge burners, and so you mm. got to see the end of um, what became a legendary army. And with what you started to see from the fourth book onwards, is the birth of a new legendary army, and that's the Bone Hunters. So mm. I had to sort of put them onto center stage. Uh, it took a bit manu- a bit of maneuvering in order to do so. Mm. Yeah, mm. we um. We said a lot when we first started reading this book that it's it felt like we were coming back to like old friends mm-hmm. and like we were we were being embraced into a big group hug. Did it feel like that coming back to like the 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 bone hunters? I guess. Um, well, it was so long ago. Uh, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> probably. Um, it, more more of a sense of okay, now I'm I've set I've set the table and um, I have to start picking up those elements that are going to proceed through to the end of the series. And so right. in that sense, that felt good to, to come back to. Mm-hmm. Well, l- let me build on that because you, you mentioned you're picking the elements that are going to proceed through to the end of the series. Since the story is so expansive and has so many different cast members and, you know, all these different storylines in, in the first half of the series, how did you pick which elements were going through all the way to the end of the series? Which ones, what, like, how did you discern that process between this storyline is best to end here at the end of a given book or to like to go all the way, so to speak? Um, it, I guess, I don't know, even if you think of individual novels, um, you'll get character storylines that um, will parallel uh, another character's storyline. Um, and in some cases, yeah. one of those characters drops off. Um, either they're, they're killed or they head off into the sunset or whatever. And I allow myself to do that because I've got the other character to, to sort of pick up that thematic thread and continue it. And so that's kind of the same way with the larger elements. So, you know, I just mentioned the, the end of the bridge burners and the rise, uh, the birth of the bone hunters. Um, so all the functions that the bridge burners had in the earlier books are now picked up by this new cast of characters. Um, and in this case, we get to see where it all begins, which we didn't with Gardens of the Moon. The bridge burners were mm-hmm. uh, in their last days already. So in a sense, it, it's serving the same function. And so wherever I can replace something, then that thing that I can replace then can stand alone within a book and be closed off because I know that I'm continuing the thematic thread 
with another set of characters or another circumstance or another storyline. So I think that probably played a large role into sort of deciding what goes uh, and what stays. Mm -hmm. And then in some cases, you know, with certain characters, well, I knew they were there at the end. So um, I was committed to keeping them there. Yeah. Okay. So you're talking about like, you know, obviously we get a lot of new characters or not even new characters in this book, but characters that we previously maybe didn't know would be, you know, sort of continuing through, especially from book four. Um, in my opinion, like like uh, the characters in the 14th, you know, uh, are some of the ones that I maybe vaguely remembered them existing. But in this book, they like came much more mm -hmm. into their own. What do you when you're when you have such a short time? And I mean, I know well, not short is relative. It's a long book. But, you know, hmm. when you're trying to quickly characterize all these soldiers and, you know, you can't really give each of them their own little soliloquy, you know, for four pages of exposition, what, what do you as an author try to focus on to, like, give them their own distinct feel and make them memorable for the audience? Because I, I found the characters great, but I, I don't know how you do it so quickly. So in terms of the 14th, you're thinking of, like, Farad and Sort and people like that? Yeah, and Korik and Smiles and all them. Right. Okay. Um, well, it depends. I mean, Cork and Smiles and Tar and Bottle were all role-played characters by um, mm. by people. So I had something uh, right there that was uh, I could build off of. Mm -hmm. So a certain level, at least for me, of familiarity with these characters. Ferret and Sort probably was an NPC, although I can't remember. But it, it's more a case of one writes what is needed uh, for the scene in order to differentiate these characters. And then you build off of that as you, as you keep going. Um, and so, yeah, one is, one is kind of building the character at uh, each time they step into a scene. You're just building off of what you've already, you know, what you've already established. But mm -hmm. it, in terms of writing, it's, it's, it's a different process when you're creating a character who is going to be present for all of, you know, two scenes to serve that particular function. Then there is a fair bit of, uh, I guess, expositional filling in uh, background, but just enough, not a lot, just enough to actually deliver whatever kind of impact you're looking for uh, when you write the scene. Mm, cool. And, and, you know, I, I've got character lists, uh, and I had the 14 certainly had far more character named, named characters than what we saw and what you will see in the series. Mm. And sometimes what decides... What I decide in terms of which character I want to actually run with is whether I like their name or not. But if, if I don't like their name, I, I may well just kill them off. Um, mm. drop them. So if we ever come across a character with a really bad name, like don't don't, don't get attached. Hope, like they're yeah, going to yeah. die. Yeah, don't get attached. Yeah, if it's not, you <laughs> yeah. know, it's more a case of if it's not a memorable name in some fashion. Mm. Um, Got it. That makes sense. So you know, when you're running a game, you, at least when I did. I, I populate uh, squad after squad uh, within a company. And then, you know, there's battles and all the rest. And, and you have to decide, you know, which names you cross off the list in those squads. <laughs> and um, I just cross off the ones that, um, you know, I didn't come up with a good enough name for. And yeah. uh, off they go. Yeah. <laughs> Every John is immediately X. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And then one, you know, certain characters whose names... I just, I, I absolutely love, I mean, they're, they're impossible to kill, you know, so mm -hmm. they, they hang around. It really bums me out. Cause I, I think whiskey Jack's such a good name. And now I know you just were like, not good enough though. It really hurts. <laughs> well, uh, in my defense, it, it's Cam's creation of name. Um, uh... I didn't create whiskey Jack. So 
I wasn't particularly, you know, a fan one way or the other of it. I was quite neutral <laughs> when it came to Whiskey Jack. And then he got axed. Yeah. yeah. So we we see we see we see where you landed. Uh, I don't want to derail us too much because I don't really know anything about these books. But Peter and uh, Iskar Jarek are doing a an ice series uh, of all the, you sure. know all the the novels of the fallen and uh, I ice led, series. Uh, it can. <laughs> Yeah, Cam. It's, it's his name. The companion, uh, the companion novels to, okay. to these. But there is a character uh, named Kyle. Mm-hmm. If I'm, if I'm <laughs> mistaken, I was just curious. I was just curious how you felt about the name Kyle. <laughs> well, it's one of those things where I mean, that's not. It's that's a diminutive of his name. It's a, it's a longer name. I think it's Carlian oh, okay. or something along those lines. Um, it's one of those sort of unfortunate things where you sort of. You've created a character and people pick up on the naming convention. I mean, I don't see it at very different from Quick Ben, for example. I was right uh, about yeah, to bring up the Quick Ben yeah, thing. Yeah, so I, I'm, not, yeah, I'm yeah. not particularly bothered one way or the other, but I know yeah. some readers can, can, I guess, I don't know. I guess there's there's too much um, of this world's cultural baggage that can be attached to a recognizable name. Yeah, sure. Mm, but, yeah. I mean, the origins of Quick Ben was um, the fictional character Ben Quick in the uh, Faulkner um, novel, uh, Long Hot Summer. So, you know, and I just, I just inverted Ben Quick, Quick Ben. You a big Faulkner fan? Um, I, I am a fan, um, but I probably lean more towards the Hemingway thing. I mean, I was remembering this with talking with AP not long ago, but uh, Cam and I were roommates going to university here in Victoria, and we were watching a lot of classic films. And I mean, one of them was um, Long Hot Summer with Paul Newman. I think that that version, there's been a remake that's mm. not quite as good. But the Paul Newman one is is a fabulous um, story, a fabulous film. And we were watching that at the time uh, when Quick Ben was created as a character. So that's basically mm. you know, sprang straight straight from the uh, the film we were watching. Mm. And I was I was appreciating it. I think the script was written by Hemingway. And I think Hemingway and Faulkner was kind of sort of doing this back and forth. Um, Faulkner wrote the script for um, To Have and To Have Not, Hemingway's um, mm. uh, story that got uh, adapted with Humphrey Bogart and Lord McCall's first film. Um, so they were they were messing around with each other, even though stylistically they were at the opposite ends of American literature. Yeah. They obviously didn't mind. And so they were, they were blasting into each other's uh, territories with script writing, which I thought was really cool. I didn't know both of them wrote scripts. That was, that's, I'm going to have to look into that. Yeah, I could be wrong on, on the uh, Long Hot Summer, um, but I'm definitely not wrong on um, To Have and To Have Not. Uh, mm. That's a Faulkner script. I, to, yeah. pi- to pivot into Hemingway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> what, what age, Steve, do you think that Hemingway can start to be understood? Because as an American student... I was tasked with reading The Sun Also Rises mm-hmm. as like an, a, like an 11th grader, and it super made no sense. And now I'm like, when I think back on that book, I'm like, oh, I feel like if I read it now, I would get a whole suite of things from it. And I imagine it changes even as you keep, you know, aging and yeah. reading it. Yeah, uh, yeah, you probably would. I don't know if there's there's a, a limit on on like an age limit. It's more it's more what you've been exposed to in your life, um, and as a reader for that matter, because. Hemingway approaches the the craft of writing as he would uh, in his uh, in his reporting. So it's a very journalistic style. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also, I mean, he plays with uh, with sentence structure in a way that you wouldn't see in a newspaper or a magazine article, for that matter. 
Um, so he mm -hmm. was doing some other things. And I guess the modern equivalent would be uh, McCarthy, Cormac McCarthy. Hemingway sort of did this paring down style, kind of reducing reducing his diction level, if you will. The, the language is very sparse. It's very um, clinical um, and understated. Sentence structure sometimes not so, but definitely language, um, diction levels. Uh, Faulkner went the other way. Uh, very lyrical, very poetic stuff. And Cormac McCarthy, if you read The Road, um, that is kind of Hemingway brought to an absurd level uh, and stylistically, where everything is pared down. So it, it, it almost becomes devoid of almost any kind of human content to it. At least that's my sense, my reading of it. I did not enjoy reading mm. that book at all. Um, <laughs> I was uh, very frustrated by it. Not that it has to be one or the other, but no. if you had to try and, because we don't need to create a binary, but it's like if you had to try and think about where you're, you feel like your style falls in this spectrum, <laughs> do you feel like you're more sparse? Do you feel like you're more falling into this more evocative thing? Or um, I, I've stolen freely from both of them. Um, <laughs> I love uh, some of the, the sentence structures that Hemingway messes around with, especially uh, when he creates settings. He does his way of sort of loading everything into a single sentence, um, which I really quite like. Faulkner is more the, yeah, like uh, the lyrical turn of phrase. Um, it's fecund uh, as, as a writing style. Um, very, very rich. And uh, I steal from both. Um, hmm. And it quite often it depends on the section I'm writing. It depends on the, the novel I'm writing. The Malazan stuff is, it's somewhere in between. It's, it's, you know, if we were to put it in context for fantasy fiction, it's somewhere between Glenn Cook's Black Company and Donaldson's um, Covenant series. Mm. It's somewhere in between because I, I stole from both of those two. Before we move on, I did want to just quick clarify. Uh, I looked it up and I think <laughs> Faulkner helped write both scripts, but mm. I don't think Hemingway oh, right, wrote okay. either of them. Fair enough. Fair enough. So just, right. just got a quick clarification. No, 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 but I still good. found it fairly interesting. That's good. <laughs> um, I just thought it was, I mean, it was very cool because. Uh, so Having to Have Not is, is a fantastic film. Um, mm. And uh, Lauren Bacall just steals the show in that film. And, and, and you can see, I mean, that's where Bogart fell in love with her. And Yeah, whenever and, they're on screen. It's yeah, uh, it's just it's just uh, dynamic. It's, it's extraordinary to watch. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, I adore that film. The old black and white classic adaptation. Um, and yeah, uh, a lot of that stuff found its way in in some fashion or another. Uh, in the gaming we did, and then by extension in, in the writing that we did in the Malaysia world. Hmm. We didn't have a <laughs> we didn't have a pivot question ready for Hemingway and Faulkner, unfortunately. We no, didn't predict that, believe I mean, it or not. I'm surprised. I was trying to pass the ball to Inge. You got an Inge? I, if I'm taking the ball, we're completely leaving this entire conversation, <laughs> and we're going back to. Malazan because you ask, I don't I, I'm so lost guys I'm so lost in this conversation when when, in, when India has to say I understand Malazan more than this we have that's taken, you, that's, we've taken we've a really turn. dipped in some territory yeah that is when you know that we have gone somewhere else far yeah. field yeah so we're coming back and we're coming we're, I'm bringing us back and we're going to chapter seven okay. and, oh yeah chapter seven I did I did sort of pre pre-warn you people didn't i uh yeah you yeah. did yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah you did okay how many how many read the chapter in one sitting everyone here except for me <laughs> oh not India. you josh i don't remember that far back <laughs> in my life <laughs> You're I, was a, old, I was a younger man then 
<laughs> it, too much. It was, it was too anxiety inducing. Mm. I have way too much anxiety for that. But my question to you is, do you remember like very vividly writing that at all? And if so, what were you like? What at all was your inspiration? Or is that just like off the dome? Which if so, scary. <laughs> so, so basically what you're asking is what drugs was I on? Absolutely. Wow. <laughs> um, In a respectful way, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Um, when I sat down to write the chapter, uh, I knew that the primary emotion I wanted to evoke was um, claustrophobia. Yep. And I wanted to make sure that uh, I didn't let the reader off, um, off the hook in any fashion in terms of ending the chapter partway through or anything along those lines. I wanted to drag them all the way through that journey in the company of all of these characters. So, but if you're going to drag and have these characters make their way through this claustrophobic environment, you can only go so far uh, in describing that environment because it's the same for each character. They're experiencing, you know, the same rubble, uh, the same darkness, the same dust. All of those sort of physical details will be exactly the same for each character. So. I didn't want a you know a hundred page or hundred twenty page chapter to um, bore the reader, and so right. you know there's there's only so much description you can do in there. So the only alternative is to look at the internal landscapes of each of the characters and push those as far apart as I could, so that each one was quite unique uh, in how it uh, played out uh, on the journey that everybody is taking, and so. In that respect, um, chapter seven is a kind of a microcosm for the characters in the entire series um, and their internal landscapes as they as they journey through something that at least externally they're all sharing, but their appreciation of it and and how they interact with it is going to be unique in, in each instance. So so yeah, I pushed all the characters, and I think at that point, Korab he's sort of showed up not initially as a, a character I was going to follow. Um, really? Yeah, I, I mean, love he was, Korab. Yeah, well, he was, you know, even the name, Korab, Bilan, the Musilans, uh, you, know, you know, it's a mouthful of a name. And yeah. When you often, say it, when you say it, the last name even sounds like the nuisance. Yeah, well, <laughs> pretty much. And so, and he first shows up as a kind of foil for Leoman and uh, mm. almost a comic relief element to him. Yeah. Because Leoman mm. is, is, one of Cam's uh, classic role-played characters. Um, oh. He hardly says a word, and he holds everything in, and you're not quite sure what's going on with him. And I always liked that. So Korab was was the more vocal uh, foil for Leoman, but also the kind who would express, without any subtlety, the ideas behind fanaticism uh, of one form or another. So he started just taking shape, and then... I, th I think probably had in mind that he uh, he was he wasn't going to make it out of the temple. Um, he might not even have made it into Whoa. the temple. And, and yet something held me back and just said, "No, don't don't kill this guy." And so I I had him sort of join up and crawl through along with everybody else. And he became I think probably the most important character in that entire journey of, of the seventh yeah. uh, the seventh chapter. And that that can just happen. Uh, he just sort of mm -hmm. came alive and. And he'll play a role through the rest of the series, which was, you know, initially not something I anticipated. But um, sometimes you just you realize that that's the case, and you got to run with it. So in terms of drugs, no, not really. But <laughs> just uh, unleashing the imagination, because because they're trapped physically in a place, then the imagination is the only place you can go to to make things interesting. 
and explore other aspects of, of um, their journey. I mean, also, a lot of them start hallucinating, right? There's that whole scene yeah. where they eat the honey. Um, oh, so good. And that then, once, you know, once you sort of brought in the notion of that kind of hallucinations, then as a writer, it's like, oh, this is great because, you know, the reader's on board with this because they've seen, you know, these characters eat this hallucinogenic honey. Now I can actually go crazy with, with symbols and um, archetypes <laughs> and all the other things that you have to bury uh, in, in your normal exposition of text. But here mm -hmm. I could just lay it all out and um, have a lot of fun with that. Mm. Was it fun? Oh, it was a blast. <laughs> Absolute blast. So when you finished writing that, you weren't like, shit. No, no. But you had to take it, write it over several days. I mean, it's a long chunk of stuff. I'm sure it was over several days. Yeah. But yeah. still, I just feel like the emotional toll that like it puts the reader through. It's interesting that you were like writing along. <laughs> yeah, but bear in mind that uh, the metaphor of rebirth is pretty much front and center in that right. chapter. And this is where the bone hunters are born out of the 14th. And so it's literally the birth canal journey. And so it's, it, it's, it's going to be pivotal to the rest of the series. And so generally when I, when I get to a, to a, a section or a scene or a chapter like that, I bear in mind that, that this has a larger purpose and, and that sort of keeps my focus on, on what I'm up to. And I just have a blast because, you know, I know, I know it's all there for a reason. Um, mm -hmm. And, and that, that sustains the writing. Did did you know when you started the siege that it would be uh, a firestorm that sent them underground? Yep, yep. Okay. And so you were like, firestorm. How do I do that? Obvious. The walls are filled with olive oil. How <laughs> how do you get there? <laughs> I really want to know. Well, um, True. One of the things to remember is is you know there are sort of cornerstones to civilization. Um, oh. One of them is olives. Olive oil, if you look at the at, at early history, um, classical history, pre-classical, I guess, uh, rise of um, the first bronze city civilization in that region. It was pretty much founded on olive oil. And, and olive oil then triggers things like trade, and trade mm -hmm. triggers new ideas coming in and organizational systems that can deal and manage with trade. And then you get separation of wealth um, and, and material goods and hierarchies arise. Everything sort of comes out of that. I suppose I'm trying to think of what other primary examples you'd have. Olive oil is certainly a major player, say, for the Minoans and everybody on the Anatolian coast and Greece. Mm -hmm. Wine would be another, and beer would be another. Bread, I guess, uh, although that's generally made locally, you know, in various forms. But olive oil is is it struck me that that would be certainly a major crop or or resource in seven cities. And if I make, you know, Yagatan is, is a, a very old city. Uh, it's already had some of its history with the Malazan Empire. And um, it just seemed like Leoman would make use of whatever was, whatever was available. And in this case, uh, it was massive stores of uh, olive oil. Oof. When you put it like that. Yeah. You That's... fool, Josh. You activated my anthropology <laughs> expertise. Yeah. Yeah. Duh. Wild. Well, I, I think it's just an interesting moment because, like, it's kind of a crash into the mundane in a way. Because usually in books like this and in other settings, it's like what do a given city trades or how their economy functions isn't necessarily highlighted in mm. the story or important. So then you get to this place, it's like, oh, well, this is they trade olive oil, and you're like, oh, 
I, I guess so, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it was first, uh, the first thing I had to determine was how flammable is olive oil. And it turns out, it, it did is, you experiment? Well, I did some reading up on it, but it, it is, <laughs> it is workable. Let's put it that way. Mm. I wanted to make sure yeah. of that. Yeah, that was the first thing I thought when I read that. I was like, is olive oil this flammable? But Well, it's, a, it's got yeah. a low smoke point, so you can't right. cook high heat with it. But I imagine right. if you were exposed open flame, yeah. yeah. Hmm. So we could try it is what you <laughs> yeah. Have our own rebirth. <laughs> I don't uh, think it would be. <laughs> so coming, coming at a different part of this from the anthropological lens, uh what evidence in 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 i guess historical societies were there that people had been cooked in their armor like is that was that taken from anything or did you just make that up um because that was brutal so bad yeah Mm -hmm. i'm not sure i'm not sure Mm -hmm. if i took that from i mean we do know of sieges and we do know of cities that that were set aflame Um, right and so if you're looking say at the crusades something along those lines where you know, entire civil populations were, were executed or 10% or 50% or whatever. Um, or cities, yeah, cities that were set on fire during a siege. It, it, it seems commonsensical to think that if you're, sure. you're loaded up in armor, um, you're potentially at risk of cooking in that armor. Yeah, you're basically just wearing a big pot. You are. Pretty much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oof. Ugh. <laughs> it's brutal. It was almost as brutal as the... Actually, I have not read anything that I thought was as bad as the coins on the skin. Uh, yeah, that yeah. was the worst thing I've ever read. It's going to get... And we... we, we it's This book is the one that it gets a little worse. Or maybe it's mm. the one after this. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Did you have to... Did you have to really convince the editor on this chapter? Like, it's got to be one uninterrupted 140 page slog or the whole book doesn't work <laughs> and you because you've said you had a good relationship with your editor so uh, are you saying that in the past tense <laughs> uh i don't remember i don't remember if i had to um i may have warned him beforehand saying you know sure keep an eye out for chapter seven it's got to go that way um mm-hmm. but i don't remember specifically mm-hmm. do we ever see Felison younger again Everybody or else is she just like with, off in the sunset with with spoilers on this one? Uh, uh, I mean, a simple I yes or no, them. but but I, don't I imagine <laughs> the answer is yes. India, it's gone. I don't know. Or, I mean, or, I hope it's do yes. People want to vote just, on it, or I, I, I'm I, good with like a very soft like yes or no. That's all. <laughs> that's all I need. How is yes? I don't want to no know. Soft? I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Okay, well, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I don't need the specifics. Like, why don't you guys just take your headphones off? It could just be Indian Steve. It's like spoiler alert. <laughs> I have to edit this, India. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay, fine. Never mind. Never mind. Well, that to say, I was. Well, um, I'm curious. What would you uh, anticipate for uh, for listen younger? That's the thing. Mm. Like, it could go either way. Is mm. my thing. But now that you said this, I'm like, <laughs> maybe, maybe she like because I, 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 I just for some reason I'm just really into her character mm-hmm. i like i really liked her i really liked telly and i really like absolutely we all know this or i don't know what it is mm-hmm. i don't love tavor but um <laughs> which i know is the hottest of all takes i know <laughs> but um I, I i just really liked her character and and that ending i don't think would be the worst thing for her so i wouldn't be mad if that's where it ended i just i also selfishly would like to hear more of her story mm. Oh, I don't That's know. Just, I don't know how I should answer that one. Um, you don't have to. You don't even have to. It's fine. It's just my take on it. I really enjoyed. She didn't have a lot going on here, no. like at all. But 
it, it was better than what could have mm -hmm. ended up for yeah, her. So definitely. Well, okay. So you've well you've started Reaper's Gale, right? So not, not yet. Uh, not yet. Not yet. Peter. Okay. No. Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll, I, we'll, I, we'll record our first one next week, which means which we will all start. I should have started it. I should have yeah, started. Technically, it. we should have. Indy and I have yet to buy it. <laughs> right. Monsters. Okay. All right. So yeah, I can't even give you that that bit of information. But um, Ugh. just I mean, bear in mind that at the end of the Bone Hunters, um, there's been an, an, an official severing of the umbilical cord for the Bone Hunters um, and the Malazan Empire. And so right. in that respect, the likelihood that we're going to follow the Bone Hunters is pretty high. Sure. So maybe that's your Fair. answer. Fair. <laughs> I'll take it. So when you talk about how, like you were talking about the bone, of course the bone hunters come on to center stage here. They get reborn. They kind of you know become this army proper, yada yada. But um, as they are focused in on this book, I wonder how you also manage the other characters whose storylines both take steps into a different uh, phase, or that you know are going all the way, but are are also trying to balance them. You know, for example. Of course, we follow Mappo and Akarium in this book and Karsa and Samar. And so to try and manage those storylines that aren't necessarily following this main Bone Hunters through line, I wonder how what considerations you took to balance their weight in this book. Um, well, there is a meeting point. It's just not in the book. Uh, it, it's awaiting you. So th this this is kind of gathering up those, like you say, those separate groups of characters. And then if you were to diagram it, uh, they're, they have a trajectory, and that trajectory is all converging into into a single point. But the, that point is off is, is off stage right now for you guys because you haven't read further in the series. So you know, bearing that in mind, I, I needed to bring various characters to that that central point, and so I needed I needed the reader to see how they got there rather than just spring them uh, on the reader as having showed up. Hmm. A lot of the Bone Hunters was moving people around in, in a geographical space. Yeah. And, um, you know, you look at some of the other stuff and uh, my earlier stuff and yeah, I, I'll have armies marching and that kind of thing. And, and that sort of gives us a sense of the geography and, and distance and, and time in which for things to happen, characters, characters to develop, but generally it's not, it's not the, the central mechanism for the story, but for the bone hunters mm -hmm. moving these characters, point A to point B or point Z, whatever, um, <laughs> is actually quite central to the structure of, of, the, of that novel. So that's what made it a little bit different. Uh, you've brought me to one of the questions I had as we got to the end of this book. Which, uh, so the gray swords just sort of like appear mm. at the end. And I feel like as I've read your books, it really, like some sometimes the end of the books, you do this thing where you're like, I'm going to do the wildest thing you can imagine. And then I'm going to really make you feel so silly for questioning it because it totally makes sense. Because I was like, well, the, when they were just like, we have a portal through a random warren that's going to get to Malice City in three days. <laughs> I was like, okay, Steve. But like, what are they really, I, I, you know, I guess we got to get there. And then they get there and you're like, oh, they're actually super important to the rest of the plot, aren't they? And when you when you do these like outlandish things at the end of your books, have you ever started one and been like, oh, well, even I can't make that one work. We got to <laughs> back a little bit from here. <laughs> um, hmm. No, I, I'm usually, by the, by the time I've re reached the point of, of writing the end of the books, I've got that pretty much worked out. Um, mm -hmm. Because you're right, if, if I were to sort of invent something on the fly and then have to, to backtrack through the narrative, that would be disastrous. Because, uh, you know, I, 
my style is to write in a linear fashion. So I start on page one and I end up on page a thousand or whatever. Um, I don't cut and paste at all uh, because there's a continuity that's necessary. And it's not necessarily visible to the reader, but it, it operates and it's, it's, it's a thing that, that I require in order to tell the story. Mm. So. so you started page one and you were like, and it's going to end with essentially time travel. The end. It's just, <laughs> it's just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, the precedent was already set, right? We have the Imperial War. Um, yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think if there had been no precedent, then that would have been more problematic for sure. Mm-hmm. So a question popped into my head now about Korab. So like you're writing chapter seven, you're feeling inspired and decide to take this character into this new direction. Does any part of you want to go back? Um, obviously, you can't go back to House of Chains or anything, but to earlier scenes with this character to change how he was written or just mm. to cast a different light onto his story within this book? I mean, does making that decision, obviously, it's going to have a lot of trickling effects out. And I'm sure this phenomena was not only about Korab. So do you did you go back? Would you go back? What do you think about that? Um, No, I didn't go back. I mean, that has burned me on occasion where, you know, I thought I thought it could get you into trouble. Oh, yeah, it it has. (laughs) You know, I I swapped genders in some instances. Um, So not going back and just checking on things. um, Yeah. that's a bit um, careless on my part, but I had a fair sense of, of Korab and, and the role he had played up to this point. And so yeah. there, there's a there's a part of me that sort of likes the idea that just as in our lives, um, we don't know where we're headed. And hmm. when we arrive there, we can't turn around and go back 10 years and, and you know, make changes here and there mm-hmm. to affect the, the outcome of what's just arrived. So I, I guess I like that with characters as well, is that... They are not. They are not. Um, they're not able to predict where they're going. And yeah. I think that I think a writer needs that kind of freedom as well to not really know um, where that character is headed. Uh, mm-hmm. Otherwise, things can become very predeterministic very quickly, and then that can get in the way of just having characters do whatever the hell they please um, as it shows up on the page. And then, as the writer, having to deal with that and the consequences of that, which I've always found. Uh, be part of the reward um you know you create a character and 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 they go off and surprise you and then they create a dilemma uh for you as the writer and just and and the story you're telling and then you just have to you write your way out of it in some fashion or another yeah which i imagine is going to happen if you follow a character like that you could end up in some like okay well this disrupts something i want to do or i got to figure out how this is all gonna go together you know yeah Yeah. i mean the classic example is troll singar in um, you know, so um, I won't go further than that, but it's it's <laughs> it's just you, you go with the character, and the assumption is they're within the world you've created, and so they're bound to it. And there is a narrative flow that's also uh, presumed because I'm telling a story. So there, there's mm-hmm. uh, a storyteller, and there's an audience. Um, but other than, other than that, uh, it's that character can go you know anywhere they want, and if they want to. They want to leave the scene and not come back, and that's what happens. Um, you just have to go with it. Yeah. Now, is that, you've you've talked a lot about in the past about being a short story writer first, mm. and like everything you write being you know very thought out and all of that stuff. Is it easier to pivot when a character like when a character does something that you weren't planning on or expecting? Is it easier in a short story to 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 I guess course correct, or is it 
easier in like this, you know, a 10 book series? It's a great question. Um, it's almost impossible in a short story to correct that. <laughs> okay. um, because of the, the necessity of the short story being um, pretty much a singular focus. Uh, right. Whatever it is you're, you know, you're trying to pull off, it, it's a single focus. Um, novels, uh, multiple, uh, or innumerable. <laughs> Uh, points, yeah, it's about points the of focus. world in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. So uh, just as, you know, in our own lives, we could be steered off track uh, for one reason or another. Um, you know, you move to the wrong city to take the wrong job, you know, these kind of things. You can you can correct it, right? And go back to and resume the narrative um, with the, the harsh experience of having, you know, gone through what you just went through. Um <laughs> And that's how novels are in that sense that, that you can, you can draw your characters, you can pull them back, you can yank them back, um, or you can almost seduce them back so that they're not aware that they're, they return uh, <laughs> to the, the main narrative thread thematically. Right. Hmm. Cool. Hello, everybody. AJ here, producer, editor, and co-host of 10 Very Big Books, popping in the middle to give some thanks and to just warn everyone that there's a short combo about spiders and a scorpion coming up. So if you don't want to hear that, skip ahead like two minutes or check the show notes for a safe time code. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. And thank you, as always, to Steven Erickson for coming on the show and dealing with our, let's say, loose conversation structure. Uh, if you'd like to give your thoughts or feelings about this or any of our episodes, you can always email us 10verybigbooks at gmail.com, tweet us at 10verybigbooks, or head on over to our Discord, bit.ly slash VBB Discord. That's capital V, capital B, capital B, capital D, Discord. That link will also be in our show notes. Uh, thank you to all of our wonderful patrons over on Patreon uh, who have made this episode and uh, our bonus off-season episodes possible. Uh, if you'd like to financially support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash 10verybigbooks. That link will also be in the show notes. And as always, thank you so very much to Dan Gezerick for making our spectacular cover art. You can follow him on Twitter at A underscore W underscore Dan G for some confounding targeted ads. And of course, the wonderful music in today's episode is by the one, the only Amaranthan from their album, The New Romantic, which you can find along with their other music on bandcamp.com. Links to their pages will be in the show notes and 10 Very Big Books will be back next week on October 1st, where we'll be jumping into book seven, Reaper's Gale, with the prologue and chapters one and two. We're very excited for this one. I'll talk to you then, and let's get back to the interview. I have a question mm -hmm. about Hellion. Do you remember your inspiration for that character? Aren't you wow. actually afraid of spiders? No, I have no fear of spiders. I had a pet tarantula at one point named Quiche Lorraine. And, ah! and she was a, a, a female Mexican uh, red and black, big one. Mm. And she would escape all the time. Um, so she'd be somewhere <laughs> in the house. And I think mm -mm. I had the aquarium at home when I was at, uh, at Iowa. So uh, my, my mother was taking care of it, actually. And I remember she phoned me once and said it had escaped for the weekend. And she found it <laughs> in her closet, uh, hanging oh between God. two dresses. No. In the wardrobe. Oh, in the man. wardrobe. And she just coaxed it onto her hand and put it back in the frame. <laughs> so, no, I have no fear of spiders. Um, nice. I don't like scorpions. I've been, I've been stung mm. on the chest, uh, over the heart by a scorpion. Oh, jeez. Hard pass. Yeah, you want to? It, it was in the pocket of, of the shirt that was hanging up. And the shirt was hanging up outside the mosquito netting. 
Um, uh, and so I put it on in the morning, and uh, this little amber scorpion got me good. Oh, you fool! So yeah, don't like, don't like scorpions. <laughs> um, spiders oh are fun. Oh my god! But Hellion, um, I wasn't even aware. I think that cartoon had anything to do with spiders. But um, when I started writing that scene, uh, something about it, uh, how I visualized it, made it very sort of spectral and gothic, and and not squat like a city normally is, but kind of spires and towering. And then, mm. then I, mean, I started thinking, well, you know, what, what can I make that's unique about it? And that's where the, the spiders uh, came into it all. But um, Hellion, uh, Hellion wobbly finds her feet uh, in the book uh, you're about to read. So you, know, you should have fun with her. Uh, that's exciting phenom <laughs> I, I like her because she's interesting and like hilarious but also like a badass character yeah like yeah it's it's fun to read good good <laughs> steve you get vaccinated yet twice yep absolutely nice. Woo. Woo. we can finally do that big meetup <laughs> well yeah. i mean you know, um... <laughs> don't get crazy josh yeah no a joke a joke i don't know I'd be, I'd be crazy not to vaccinate um i'd just utterly baffle that you know, some of the, the opinions that are floating around out here in Canada as, as much as anywhere else. But um, Yeah, is there a lot of misinformation out there in Canada, sure? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Same here. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think we'll be heading to boosters fairly soon as well, so additional boosters, yeah. because there is some issue on um, long-term efficacy of, of vaccines. So, yeah, yeah, there's been more research coming out about yeah. that now, right? Yeah, yeah we yeah. just people have started getting their uh, third or their booster, I guess. There's yeah, an, there's 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 an Israeli study that's showing that it's really good. I don't know why I remember reading that. Wow, that is where it's well, from. It, well, Israel did a third thing, and then there was some study about the initial wave of U.S. healthcare workers that got it and their efficiency in this summer. So yeah. there's just there's more science being done. Yeah, about exactly. It, so. Yeah. The nice thing is the statistical analyses are there's a fast turnaround time that didn't exist, you know, before mm -hmm. um, because it's so, I guess, at the forefront uh, of everyone's thinking. But I'm, I don't know. I was going to ask all of you guys. Are you all feeling exhausted? Yes. About everything. The, about the pandemic? Uh, no, I oh, think the yeah. pandemic is, is, is a trigger point. But I, I think it, it's a broader thing. I mean, what's the weather been like where you've been? Oh, my God. I'm absolutely destroyed. Yeah. yeah, I'm terrible. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I think collectively as a species right now, we're, 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 kind, of, we're kind of worn out. Um, yeah. And COVID has just sort of added, added to that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's you know, as, as somebody is a creator of, of, I guess, imaginative content, it's more of a struggle now than it was, say, three years ago. Mm. I have I have far few far fewer venues in which to write, um, and that just wears. It just wears. Mm -hmm. Well, because I know you like to write in cafes yeah. and junk. Yeah, and you know the weather started to turn, so whether I can still sit outside becomes problematic. <sighs> um, yeah, but yeah, it's 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 been it's been a bit of an eye opener, I think, uh, globally. Well, how's how's the weather been by you? Uh, it's been a drought. Yeah, and you're thinking, yeah. you know, West Coast, Vancouver Island. Um, you would think there's, you know, lots of rain. No, there's, there's no rain at all. We haven't had rain all summer. Trees are Oof. dying. Uh, gar gardens dying. Oof. It's yeah. And it was interesting because uh, I recently drove back to Winnipeg, and um, one of the first things I noticed when I uh, got through the mountains. First of all, the mountains were on fire. I mean, there's, you know, fires everywhere. So a lot of wood smoke. 
But when we got through the mountains and rolled onto the plains in Alberta and Saskatchewan, uh, we left the Trans Canada, the, the main highway, and took some uh, smaller highways. There was no, the only insect life you ran into, and literally ran into, was uh, grasshoppers. No dragonflies, uh, very few butterflies, um, no mosquitoes. I've never been in Saskatchewan and Manitoba uh, in the summer where you can literally sit outside at midnight to look at the stars and not have a single mosquito. Mm. It was, and of course, without the mosquitoes, you don't get the dragonflies because that's what they eat. Yeah. Um, oh. And things like swallows and, and swifts, um, far fewer. So it was very, very noticeable that this was uh, a, a major catastrophe sort of in the making. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it's sad. Yeah. I don't know. I, uh, personally find it very exhausting. I'm always very worried about the climate. So, yeah, but yeah, I, yeah, I think, well, by me, there was just the aftermath of that hurricane and yeah. everything, oh, yeah. like a lot of places flooded. I was shocked because I was not expecting it. Mm -hmm. And luckily I only had rain coming like from in front of my window, but it was coming inside of my kitchen. Yeah. Um, but it was very interesting. I'll send you a video. Um, <laughs> but it's just uh, it, everything is just kind of going to shit lately, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it's not very it's not very fun. No. And it, it is extremely. I just moved out, and now I live alone, and it's very isolating as well, isn't it? Just so yeah, yeah. Especially and and then Peter, who's who lives alone, but also in Japan. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine what that's like. Um, but yeah, it's just not. I'm not loving it. I'm not having a great time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to bring it up because I just wanted to get sort of test the waters on that and, and whether or not this was just my own sense of things or more collectively. No, it's, that it's, it's um, all bad. <laughs> it's, it's wearing us down, isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do, do you feel like that gets into your headspace about like you're supposed to write a book now and you're an author and like, do you feel like that affects your approach to that? I mean, well, have you read The God is Not Willing? I have, I have. Well, and there's I, your it, answer, this is ex exactly. Yeah. I uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I feel like this is an inside joke that I just. Well, I, I'm not. No, yeah, me either. Um, it's okay. Yeah. It's easy yeah. to explain. It, it's uh, and this may sound quite depressing, but I'm hoping that the novel itself um, actually uh, offers up some hope. Um, but if you look at the Malazan Book of the Fallen, um, one of the subtextual aspects of the entire storyline is about environmental destruction and degradation and civilizations that exhaust their own landscapes i mean that i mean that shouldn't surprise any of you that's kind of all there isn't it it's it's, yeah. it's been yeah. present all the way through yeah well with the god that is not willing um we're 10 years after the end of your series that you're reading oh, okay and wow thematically it's too late mm. so that's yeah. the, that's the change that's the difference i w yeah we're, me and Steve are going to talk more about it, but I do feel like it's like in the new book, it's almost the most explicit it's yeah. been, I feel. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I, I feel like you can't miss it. No, you, you can't miss it. it. No, I didn't hide anything there. No. Yeah, no. Yeah. Uh, Inge, the storm you're talking about, a tornado actually touched down in my brother's town and ripped the roofs off both the schools in the town. Oh my gosh. In Pennsylvania. Pretty crazy. Yeah. That is pretty crazy, mm -hmm. isn't it? Yeah, the, Not a lot of tornadoes a, in Pennsylvania. No, yeah. they've been touching down in Winnipeg too. And Winnipeg used to be outside the tornado corridor. Uh, not anymore. Yeah, no. yeah there's just a big one that tore through a town over from the town Pete and I grew up in. Yeah, I it saw that too. Destroyed 
so many. Yeah, full on leveled houses. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Fun times. As as a teacher getting ready for kids to come back, I can see all the people around me are like, we just got to have the energy for the kids. And then we go to bed as soon as the day's over. So we have the energy for tomorrow. <laughs> wow. And so you're you're actually back in classrooms? Uh, the, yeah, yeah, we're full blown. It, we're all in masks and like most people are vaccinated, but they have not required it of my coworkers. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, it's wild. Yeah. Wild is not the word I would use, but. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> yeah, agreed. I just work there. <laughs> yeah. Wild, wild west. <laughs> um, so, Steve, I, I've seen sometimes that you're posting memes on your Facebook, I would say, about <laughs> gross wealth inequality. You know, mm. um, uh, let's get into it. <laughs> and then I uh, and then, you know, we we're talking about this, uh, talking about the climate in the book. I wonder, do you ever feel like you want to use your platform as an author to talk about politics? Do you do you feel like that's just not something you're interested in? I don't know. Like, do you think you're a very political person? Um, no, not really. Um, no, politics is is a, it's a subsection of a worldview. Um it's basically a self-defining and self-limiting uh, way of interacting with an environment that is far more complicated than politics allows. Um, does that make any sense? No? Well, okay. expand on that a bit. Well, you mentioned the word uh, binary earlier. Um, I think politics has, has definitely lurched its way into binary thinking. Um, well, there's two, there's two political beliefs and you're one or the other. There's right. one or the other. And uh, <laughs> no nuance, uh, no subtlety, right. no flexibility in the positions that are being held. So these are, these are yes, they're, they're, they go beyond politics in that they are ideologies. And, right. of course, ideology then plays into um, how a society constructs itself or perceives itself and how it interacts with uh, members within that society even though those members may be completely different ideologically. So you've got this, this conflicting worldviews um, playing out, and it plays out in the most um, crass arena when it's in politics, but it plays out everywhere else as well. And so as a writer, um, as soon as, as, soon as you know, one starts thinking of the human condition, you've got to, you've got to take it all on board. Um, it, it's, it would be too simple and simplistic to argue specifically uh, polit on, on political issues without, without and to my mind, the anthropological aspects of, of the human condition. And then there's the scientific side of things that relate to climate dynamics, uh, resource, but I mean, even using the word resource for the natural environment is, is an economic term. So to me, it's, it's, it's almost become more complicated than it is possible to parse uh, <laughs> in any kind of reasonable way. Um, so, you know, all we really have, have before us are people making commentaries and observations. And then all I would advise is read anything and everything you can get you and listen to anything and everything. Um, assuming that stuff interests you at all. You know, if it doesn't, uh, no harm, no foul, because we're all, it seems we're all bound up uh, in a, a current uh, that is roughly civilization and we have defined it in terms of progress um but then we've altered the nature of what progress actually is and we've also applied to it a value system that may actually be wrong but it's the one that everybody sort of operates on and so it's um 
I think I'm just rambling now, but it's, <laughs> I'm just, I just, I just sigh, you know, when, when the political stuff um, starts to shake itself out. Um, mm-hmm. You know, to me, climate change is not a political opinion. It's not an ideology. It, it's, it's a reality. Uh, anthropocentric climate change is also, I think, a reality. And, and anthropology and archaeology has countless examples, you know, that, that we've actually dug up and, and revealed. Um, so there's nothing new in any of that. That's been going on since before the Industrial Age. Um, so yeah, it, it's you cannot help but write about all of these things if you're going to address the human condition in some fashion or another. And right. all literature does, all art does. Um, so pretending it's not there, it may work for a while, but I think even children's literature, you know, YA stuff, it's all in there if, if you're going to look for it. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't feel political in that sense. Um, I feel the rage and the outrage that, you know, many people with held strongly held beliefs or ideologies feel. So I share that. But um, my foe is is far more ephemeral. It, it's it may be out there, but I, I'm not I don't know if I can point fingers unless it's at the mirror. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's can. Yeah, it's a big conversation to have. I think what gets mixed up is like even talking about politics is like, you know, what does that word mean is a whole separate ways because you can define it a lot of different ways because I think a lot of things are political inherently. But then there's also like politics, the actual thing and doing politics, which is a separate, you know, so it's kind of get caught up in a language game anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we all love a good wealth (laughs) inequality meme. So (laughs) we do. Mm hmm. Oh. Well, it's funny because, you know, that extreme of inequality is is what characterizes the fall of every civilization in our past history. Hmm. It shows up in some fashion or another, and it's pretty consistent. And so that's, you know, that is alarming in, in many respects. But I've, have you considered this time it could be different? <laughs> well, well, let's see. What's the definition of insanity, right? <laughs> nice do you get frustrated seeing these patterns repeat themselves like is that that has to be frustrating right um i i I cycle i cycle through Mm. um it frustration but then some kind of shift occurs in my thinking and i go long term and as soon as i go long term um the imminent fate of humanity sort of drops away and i'm I'm thinking more in terms of the planet and its recovery sure Sure. um so yeah I, i i just yeah i cycle through that and there's a lot of energy that could potentially be expended in being frustrated and angry, um, which I'd rather put somewhere else. Sure. Yeah, I feel that. I kind of imagine the same way. I feel like climate scientists must just be walking around pulling their hair out that we haven't just stopped burning fossil fuels already. (laughs) That like, I feel like historians must just be sitting there slamming their head against books all the time. Mm -hmm. at just the sheer stupidity of we're just, we just can't stop, you know? Yep. Well, because I think it's, well, it's essentially human, right? It's like, that's all it is. Right. It is. And we may not be unique in that. I think many species are bound to the now um, and not, you know, and maybe they have the excuse of not having sentience or lesser sentience or, you know, duller reasoning faculties or whatever, whether that's true or not, who knows. But they do at least have the excuse of their of their of their instincts and their their natures. Um, We don't really have that excuse, um, but we still operate on it. Um, So we we often do things against our, you know, better nature. Um, Hmm. And that's just, it then becomes a question of, well, does society reward that or punish it? And unfortunately, these days, um, that's not an easy thing to answer. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. I feel like I mean I don't this isn't a surprise at all but the 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 there are civilizations in this book that are dealing with I guess kind of the the immovability of with like leather and stuff mm-hmm. uh and and Rulad being this like unstoppable you know god emperor or whatever and the people not the people a collective not being feeling like they are able to do anything to change it but feeling like maybe if they bring a carrium <laughs> or Carso Orlong uh, that maybe they will be able to change it. Like, do you think there is any uh, any way these ch- changes could be brought about without some sort of like I don't know, um, Mortal Combat, <laughs> Mortal Combat, but like like supernatural force, yeah, like I, some I, other force that, like, from the outside. Like, we'll have to revisit this this issue once <laughs> sure. once yeah, you've yeah. read Reaper Scale. Um, sure, okay, but I mean. What does Rulad represent having uh, assumed control of the Lethary Empire, which is a kind of a uh, colonial expansionist, um, I guess, ultra capitalist style right. um, empire? And of course, one of the things that I was messing around with when I was writing Midnight Tides was the notion that the system is, is too powerful. It's too strong for, for this, this tribal force to come in, yeah. um, put a Put their own king on 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 the throne and make any kind of substantive changes to yeah. how that system works so bearing that in mind um Rulad as an unkillable king represents the most obvious symbolic uh meaning to the system yeah. of the Lethary empire that one can imagine because it, it's it's literally you can cut you can cut the head off all you want the head pops back up or a right. new one arrives um, right. because the system is bigger than the individual yeah. Um, so Rulad sort of takes on a different role, uh, as you'll discover in, in uh, Reaper Scale. But the the essential meaning uh, of Rulad as as a ruler that is is, is unkillable and therefore therefore representative of a system that simply continues regardless of, of who's at, at the head of it. Um, yeah. I think I think that hasn't changed. That's the, that was sort of there at the beginning, and it's simply evolving now through um, right. When you get to Reaper scale, you, you'll you'll know more of what I what I mean. Sure. When yeah. you said when you said the sentence, well, what does Rulad represent? I was so worried you weren't going to answer that question because I was sitting here and suddenly I'm five being asked how to do multiplication again, and I'm like, I don't know. Well, AJ, it's funny you mentioned Carsa because I think you know we're t- you're talking Steve about. Let me put on my Joker face. Society and <laughs> civilization, <laughs> and um, you know, examining this is obviously such a big theme throughout the books. And I think having Carsa, um, obviously this outsider in that respect, I would say in this the sixth book, those conversations between Carsa and Samar are maybe one of the first times that conversation is really brought explicit into mm-hmm. the text yeah. in mm-hmm. the Book of the Fallen. Yeah. And I wonder when you decide it's time to elevate a theme like that into the dialogue and the conversation itself, or when to let, let it kind of simmer in the background of the stew, so to speak. Well, Carson's original story, um, uh, not to sort of understate it, uh, has a fair bit of action. So it's pretty headlong in terms of that narrative. Um, but by the time you get to him now, that headlong momentum has slowed, its, you know, it's slowed down. And so yeah. at that point, it, if you're going to be writing scenes with Carsa, then you have to sort of, you have to fill the emptiness uh, that is the result of him no longer killing everything in sight. Mm-hmm. So, and then 
Sam or Deb is, is sort of uh, at the other end of the spectrum in terms of uh, Karsa as um, symbolic of uh, tooth and claw uh, barbarism and Samar as um, one devoted to technological progress at all costs and at any cost. And so these are sort of the two main forces that through Samar and, and Karsa are clashing. And um, that allows you know, a lot of uh, interplay between the two. Um, to actually ask those questions of, you know, well, is there an inherent value to progress? Um, and how do you measure progress? Do we measure it in terms of material gain alone? Do we measure it in terms of, I don't know, population, political will, um, the ability to dismantle the environment? Or do we measure it in terms of how well do you live within a given environment? And, you know, is progress in, then, in that sense um, a beneficial thing or is it a survival mechanism um, and I think right now we're, we're kind of caught up in the survival mechanism uh, approach to progress uh, you can paint it up any way you want but a lot of what is driving so-called progress is actually consumption uh, we're, we're simply consumers now and the sad thing is you know capitalism requires an infinite uh, supply of resources and you know, we are we are plowing through our, our planetary resources faster than it can uh, rejuvenate itself. So, yeah, you know, we've I don't know if you've done any scuba diving, but there's, there's a little thing on the side of the tank that is your reserve air. And um, so if you're down, you know, 100 feet and um, you check your valves and you realize that you've used up your two hours of air or whatever, um, you've got the reserve air that you can just pull this. It uh, used to be a little aluminum thing that you just pull down on the side of the uh, of the tank, and you could use the reserve air to get back to the surface. Well, I think as a, as a species, we're on reserve air, and uh, we're nowhere near the surface. So you know, it's it's not looking pretty. Put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. What a cheery conversation, yeah. huh? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So yeah. heavy but, <laughs> but like, that's just the honest thing. I mean, it just yeah. like I don't know. I, I could talk about taking climate action, but it's like it's I don't know. Yeah. It's, it just is. It is what it is. It, it is how, I don't know, it's how I feel. So Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's latest book, I, I recommend on that one, uh, Ministry for yeah. the Future. There, there's a lot of good writing and there's like, I don't know, maybe this show should become a client. I, I don't know about you. Some <laughs> days I wake up and I'm like, how are we just, how is this not the only thing we talk about? Yeah. I mean, why are, like, what are we doing? You know what I mean, but. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it's exhausting. Yeah, it, it yeah. is. Yeah. That's why we don't talk about it. And, and that itself is a survival mechanism, right? Because mm -hmm. you cannot sustain that level of existential trauma for any length of time. You just can't. Uh, you burn out. Um, you, you go numb. Uh, you become indifferent. And so, you know, we consume to, to fill up the empty, empty spaces, whether those empty spaces are spiritual or manifest physically uh i don't think it really matters but you know we're that's what we're that's what we're doing to sort of stave off the trauma that is you know being expressed all around us and i think covid is, is one of the most graphic examples of societal trauma it's fucking terrible um <sighs> really yeah yeah you caught me what you caught me at a bad time i think yeah yeah, no, I think it's a bad it. time for all no, of us. No, it's yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's honest, and that's more. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, how did you did you guys enjoy the Bone Hunters? Or I, <laughs> I think Josh Josh loved the book. I loved every bit of it. I could read about dumb soldier shit forever. <laughs> it's my favorite. I need to read Black Company because I know 
I've heard it's a lot of uh, a big cast like this, I think, unless I've misread. But no, I, I, this is my, I this think is my that's, jam. Yeah. I think mm. people in the Discord have been steering you in that direction, Josh. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Oh, oh, I wanted to talk about Korab earlier. Mm. And look, you can you might if you can if you don't deny it, it's gonna be a confirmation. So you might just want to <laughs> you might just want to say nothing. But you're talking about Korab and not, you know, knowing where he was going to go as things were as progressing. There are people who are reading along with us who are absolutely convinced that Korab is either Opan or touched by Opan or possessed by Opan or something. And they point to the fact that he like put his helmet on the cusser and he made it out of the fire and he wasn't just killed by Leo. They like people were like there was like a whole essay and I was like, I think we're stretching. I think he's I think I think he's just in the story. I don't know. Didn't he explicitly Josh, like talk to Opan or, or Opan yeah, like Josh, explicitly say something about losing your mind? I think that point is confirmed in this book, the one is we it? just read. Yeah. I don't think wow. is it. Yeah, buddy. Maybe yeah, I'm pretty sure well it's enough. in the scene where we see Leoman talking to the Queen of Dreams, yes. and I forget who's eavesdropping on that scene. I think it's Crocus is sent oh, there. You're so right, and I'm dumb. <laughs> uh. Wow. There's too many things in these books. <laughs> No one should have to remember them all. Well, it's, it's always, I mean, it was great fun writing Korab and his insane amounts of luck. Uh, yeah. Right. That was always fun to write. No. I, I have recently decided that whenever someone asks me like, oh, if you could have any superpower, what would you be? The best luck is the yeah. best answer to give. It is. Yeah. Fell it out is. of a building, land on a, a big pie. I don't know why that was my brain went, but... Uh, while um, we're talking about, I guess, character questions, um, it just, this isn't really even a question, but in House of Chains, you were, you said that a lot of the dialogue between Pearl and Lestara mm-hmm. was based on conversations that you had had with your wife. God. Is that true in this book? <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, as long as I'm completely vague about which conversations, I'm, I'm oh, fairly okay. safe. From okay. okay. <laughs> right. Um, oh, but I mean, that kind of sort of exchange, um, sort of firing back and forth stuff yeah that, that i mean yeah i i, I took verbatim yeah. some sections of conversations yeah sure do do you like pearl do i like pearl <laughs> i have never hated a character for such a petty reason as i do pearl what what's your reason he's just his head so up his own butt <laughs> and if he for like a moment was like god what if i'm not the smartest in this room for like yeah. a minute the whole thing's different and it just irks me to hell i oh, yeah. it really yeah. gets me going oh he's an absolute pain in the ass yeah yeah <sighs> just a moment a moment yeah, of one, like one moment of maybe i don't shoot this poison arrow <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I know it took literally 200 other people and then me hiding in the shadows, but I am the greatest assassin warrior ever. Yeah. That is like, I, nah. I, Thank you. I do like how th- this or, or the scene with with Lestara, like having to actually kill Pearl is like one of the most concrete bits of closure I think we've gotten in this whole series. Mm. Like, I mean, I guess I guess maybe it doesn't have to be like, I guess Pearl could still be alive, but it seems pretty like open and shut like pearl is dead yeah lestara killed him this is no stand and we're moving on and like that's it just feels very concrete as opposed Mm -hmm. to a bunch of the other stuff as in like the fellas and younger thing Mm -hmm. um where you know (laughs) she's just in the desert yeah um but i appreciated that so thank you (laughs) 
Yeah. All right. Uh, um, <sighs> I think it's maybe it's time to wrap up here. Inge, do you have any final thoughts or questions for Steve? Um, Steve, it's always a pleasure <laughs> to have you here to talk to you. Uh, what's new with you? Any any closing updates that you have for me about you? About me? Um, hmm. I'm still working on Walk in Shadow. Mm. I took a couple weeks off uh, to play around with a different novella, which actually may be a short novel. Uh, if I can wrap it up in, in the next two weeks, uh, I'll be happy. Wow. And that's, that's kind of a, a murder mystery set in, in the <gasps> Malaysian world. Uh, involving um, murder mystery uh, flicker from uh, the novella Crackpot Trail, so Oof, which we have not gotten to yet. You're not I've gotten to good, yet, right? Heard good well, things. Yeah. Well, when you get to it, that's the voice that I'm writing again right now. Amazing. Um, Flicker's voice. And and is that just like a special little like you had this idea yeah. you had to do it type yeah. of thing? Yeah. Well, I believe a few conversations ago we had talked about the idea of of you writing a whodunit. So oh, I, oh, I don't yeah. want to say that we gave you the idea. <laughs> well, it's it's, but... it's close. Um, that was the character <laughs> Inspector Hugh McDonut, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That one. That so. one's still yeah. percolating around. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I've not I've not um, uh, buried that one yet. So it, it it's still me. This one is more. Flicker is the most famous or. The, the greatest assassin ever, basically. Um, okay. And oh, okay. The fact that nobody knows about it proves just how great an assassin is. Perfect. That's Perfect. true. It's true. So, Very um, good. So it's that kind of a story. Um, mm-hmm. But it's kind of, it's set in, um, I don't know if you guys watch Midsummer Murders. Oh, no. yes. Yes, in Midsummer, uh, this fake county in England where you know half the population is trying to kill the other half i'm obsessed with all <laughs> british all united kingdom mystery shows are my jam yeah well midsummer murders is is it's in its 17th 18th year now um oh my gosh and you know it, it is literally depopulated the entire county the fictional county um because <laughs> it is two or three people die every single episode and these are small towns, you know. It's it's like <laughs> the Black Death wasn't nearly as vicious as, <laughs> as Midsummer Murders. That's so um, I kind of taken that idea of, of, of uh, an English estate uh, ancestral pile and um, loaded it up with characters, and, um, and then I'm now proceeding to knock them all off. So wow. incredible! It's fun. It's like a lot of fun. It's fun. Yeah. Well, maybe hope, hopefully people get to read it soon. Well, we'll see. Yeah. Oh, I was I was just looking at Midsummer Murders, and it's twenty two seasons. Twenty two seasons, yeah. Yeah, twenty two seasons. It's yeah, it, it changes main character. Um, the, the original oh gives way to his cousin. It's a blast. That is a lot of episodes. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like some. Yeah, it sounds like. Yeah, don't take it too seriously, but yeah, yeah, yeah. the writing's fun. Um, if you want sort of really quick characterization stuff, uh. That's very well done. It's it's a mm. good series for that. You get your characters uh, uh, painted very deftly, uh, very quickly. The the UK is a butt. Like we have our soaps, but the UK has got some wildly long running stuff over there. I feel like the quality is way better. Oh, what what's the name of their longest running show? Oh, you're talking about Coron- oh. Coronation Street. Yes, that's thank what you. I'm thinking of. Yeah, that's generational right now. So yeah, because that show's been oh on for God. like sixty years or something. What's the crazy, like. is that now? Is that really? the radio one or what's the radio one that they also have? That's got mm, they have a radio one that is like apparently like uh, it's a full time job knowing all the characters who have been on it. 
<laughs> the way we spiral through topics on this yeah. show is like <laughs> giving so me much I have to tell you, I feel like just some listeners are sitting there like not Americans and are just losing their minds. But yeah, <laughs> it's the Archers. It's the Archers. Archers. It has 19,300 episodes. <laughs> oh, my it's the world's God. longest like, running drama. Yeah. Holy crap. So, wow, the Archers is still running, is it? Yes. Wow. It's probably Sorry. a podcast at this point. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Do you think they make jokes about tweets now and, like, <gasps> canceled and woke kids or something? <laughs> <Don't know. laughs> have you been to any, have you visited any places, Steve, during uh, this time? I was just, like, I was just back in Manitoba, but that is it. Um, what is that? I've never heard of that. Manitoba? It's yeah. a place in Canada. It's in Canada. Um, How do you know? I listened in school. Can, can you visualize uh, Minnesota and North Dakota? Okay, well, well it's a, okay, it's the two northern states in the mid Midwest. Okay, so think of the Great Lakes. It's west of that. And it runs up against a straight border. Beyond that border is Manitoba and Saskatchewan, etc. How far is that Man. from you? Let's see, I drove back and forth. That that consumed about 6,000 kilometers, so 3,000 miles, back and forth. I'm sorry to our listeners in Manitoba. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love Nothing personal, guys. I was never good at uh, geography. Mm. So. And I guess also sorry to our Minnesota and Antonio. I know. We don't need to apologize to them. They get it. <laughs> they know. Oh, I'm sure they get it, yes. <laughs> Is it, like, cold? <laughs> no, um, it was. Oh, I'm gonna have to keep translating from Celsius to Fahrenheit. Uh, it was. I, I'm pretty okay. Yeah, it was it over like, thirty? Zero is cold. Over thirty Celsius when I got there. So uh, wow, you know, high eighties, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, and it had been a very hot summer. Um, and yeah. there had been forty-seven days without rain. And we arrived there, and within three days, they had the the heaviest rainfall that they've had in those forty-eight. 47 days. Um, wow. And I posted a picture of uh, a trail in um, southeastern Manitoba on my Facebook page. It shows a couple of trees sort of snaking down a cliffside uh, on the side of a lake. And um, it's always one of my favorite trails. It's called the Hunt Lake Trail. And because it had just had this massive rain, this is the kind of thing you sort of notice that is alarming. Um, at least it was for me. The trail beside the lake was um, lots of snaking roots but a lot of uh humus yeah a lot of humus down between the roots which kind of mm. softened things up and padded um your walk well because of the immense dump of rain not only had the lake risen about four inches from one one rain all of the the, the humus was completely washed away so mm. basically it felt like you were walking on human bones that's what it felt because <laughs> like, the roots were all exposed Wow. And the entire yes. trail was basically destroyed. And that's a trail Jeez. I've walked wow. since I was a kid. And it's it's gone. It's pretty much gone. <sighs> so we, we walked for maybe, I don't know, an hour and a half and turned around and just went back because it was yeah. so unpleasant to walk. Mm. And I don't know if the trees wow. will survive that at all. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Manitoba. Uh, the drive was great um, <laughs> in Saskatchewan. Good. I just love Saskatchewan. Um mm. I'm trying to think how I can describe it for you, India. It's um, it's the Great Plains, and the Great Plains was traditionally tall grass prairie and short grass prairie. And the tall grass stuff, if you think Iowa, you think those areas all the way down into Kansas, that was all tall grass prairie, and it's all gone. It's it's been wiped out. Um, short grass prairie persists in ranch land in 
in Saskatchewan, uh, one quarter Manitoba, and down into Montana, uh, parts of Utah and, and that region. South Dakota will have some as well. So it's it's you get cactus, like small cactus. You get scrubby stuff. You get trees in the old uh, drainage valleys from the glacial drainage, and you get the biggest sky you have ever seen. It's the most mm-hmm. extraordinary sky. Uh, Montana used to be called, I don't know if it still has it on its plates, but big sky country. It does. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, crazy. it is. Yeah. And there's, there's no way to describe what that means unless you, you are there. It, when you're I, there, you know it. it and and it, it's, 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 it is a big sky country and there's just nothing like it. Yeah. When Pete and I did our road trip, I like actually got nauseous uh, <laughs> from it. It like really, it's, it's it really messed me up for a minute. Really? Hmm. Why? Yeah. I'm from Delaware, okay. and so everywhere for everywhere around us is super duper flat, but there's very lot like tons of trees, and so I'm really used to not seeing a lot of sky. And the first time we were like there, and I was just like, I don't like that I can see at all. I felt really small and insignificant, and I yep. wanted to pu- puke in the car. Yeah, and I didn't tell I didn't tell Peter or the other guy. I was just like, real cool guys. Love it! <laughs> oh well, my god! Well, conversely, you can walk out there and be the tallest thing. Yeah, the mm, tallest for thing miles. <laughs> so you know, yeah, it depends on you know if you want to feel small and insignificant. I suppose it's the place to do it. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. you can take it the other way. It's all about perspective. Mm. Yeah, isn't yeah, it? Exactly. Yeah. <sighs> uh, all right. Well, hold on. Sorry, really quick. I just wanted hold to. On. And the, hold yeah, on. While, while we were catching up in the last conversation we had you had said you were about to start playing in a star wars uh tabletop mm. game where you're playing a droid with uh i guess multiple memory chips or something uh how's how has that <laughs> been going uh we could only meet up i think three or four times because it was mm. oops it was just timing was raw was off this was like sure, a wednesday yeah. night um i think the guy running it has kids and so we didn't last that long but i did have some fun um with that character, and then I've just I've just recently read a, uh, a science fiction novel where you basically have that style character that can, that can <laughs> break itself apart and like a, a robotic character that can go in different various places. Um, mm. So, yeah, nice. Mm. Just wanted to catch up with that before yeah. I said goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully, I was thinking hopefully we'll get back to it in the winter. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking this morning when I was making breakfast about how you know our first interview was was like uh, right before the pandemic we talked for the first two times and then i remember when we talked for memories of ice it was the first time it was like early on or so in the pandemic and i was like oh what a novel experience i was like here we are (laughs) having a pandemic little just totally different time i feel like Mm. those first few months of the pandemic were just a totally different world they were yeah 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 well anyway um (laughs) josh any last note for you nope cool beans All right, well, thanks so much for joining us today, Steve. Oh, my pleasure. Um, And we look forward to talking to you at the end of Reaper's Gale, probably sometime early next year. Okay, sounds good. Awesome. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, let's clap now if we can. All right, three, two, one.
Oh, Steve got in. On oh, it. got nice. the clap. It only took six. That was that. All right, that was the whole thing. Steve, thank you so much for coming. We were just trying to get you on video clapping. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> we, we're gonna get paid handsomely for that. Yeah, well, somebody's yeah. gonna complain about it though. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> he claps from his wrists. Yeah. <laughs>